Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Here's a public service announcement worth repeating. Be kind to restaurants. We know restaurants have been dealing with labor shortages and shortages in food and other supplies in this pandemic. But there's also been a shortage of patience and kindness from customers. We hear about the impact on Connecticut restaurant owners and staff. That's coming up. First, we welcome back members of Connecticut Public Radio's investigative team, the Accountability Project. They've been looking at whether the juvenile justice system in Connecticut is working. Criticism has grown in recent months after a spate of car thefts in local towns. But what does the data show? Joining us now on Zoom, Walter Smith Randolph, investigative editor and lead reporter for the Accountability Project. Walter, welcome back. Thanks so much, Lucy. Great to be here. Also with us is Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, an investigative reporter with the Accountability Project. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Walter, your series airs this week on Connecticut Public Radio, also online at ctpublic.org. I understand it's called Juveniles, Joyrides, and Justice. Give us some background on the series. Yeah, so the reason why we decided to do this series is because there's been a lot of talk over the summer about juveniles stealing cars and whether or not crime is on the rise and whether or not the juvenile justice system here in Connecticut um, is working. And so Jackie can get into more details about the facts and the numbers and and what the data is showing, um, but we wanted to take a closer look and see if what politicians were saying was true. Um, There's been several rallies, uh, several press conferences at the state capitol where Republicans have said that, you know, uh, juvenile justice is out of control and um, they're they're calling for a special session to uh, talk about police accountability. But then Democrats say, look at the data. Also, we noticed that Republicans and Democrats were looking at two different sets of data. Um, And then also there was a big story from New Britain where a 17-year-old allegedly mowed down a jogger um, in a stolen car. Um, And in the process of reporting out the story, um, we discovered that there was somebody else chasing the 17-year-old. They were also charged um, in that chase as well. And we noticed that other media outlets weren't covering that. They covered the big big story, but they weren't going deeper to find out what actually happened. And so we wanted to give some context, some analysis, and also to look at the numbers behind everything that's been going on this summer. Walter, tell us about that second person charged, not a juvenile. Not a juvenile, grown man. Um, I'm blanking on his age right now, but the story goes, according to the um, arrest warrant application, the 17-year-old, yes, he was in a stolen car. Um, He did have a 15-year-old passenger as well. Um, And he was speeding through New Britain before uh, he allegedly, and I say allegedly because he hasn't been convicted yet, mowed down that jogger. But we also discovered that there was a gentleman who was in a car who was chasing him. And in the arrest warrant application, um, the gentleman said that he 
saw the 17 year old steal his wallet. And so he decided to chase him for 11 miles. Um, this this uh, gentleman called 911 and told them and 911 said, stop chasing him. And he did it. Um, the 17 year old also allegedly threw, his, threw, the, threw the guy's wallet out of the car and he still chased him. And so, yeah, the 17 year old was behind the wheel. Yes, someone died. But the question, you know, remains to be seen if the other guy was wasn't chasing him with the 50, 53 year old uh, jogger ended up dead. Um, and we talked to Jackie, talked to the police chief in New Britain, talked to the mayor of New Britain, and they both said, uh, you know, if the other guy wasn't chasing him, you know, he might still be alive. Mm. Uh, Jackie, uh, let's talk about um, the data. Walter saying that a lot of the, the rhetoric uh, out there um, from politicians, they're focusing on different sets of data. And so what did you look at? And what did you find? So when you look at where these thefts are happening, it's definitely moved to the suburbs more so, um, which is driving a lot of fear um, around this issue, which is really sort of propped up this issue. Um, and put it on a lot of people's radar who maybe um, it was a city issue before. Um, and going back to New Britain, um, when you look at car theft data there, during the early months of the pandemic, um, car thefts were increasing rapidly. Um, you know, in between the November and December months, um, there were three times as many car thefts as the same months one year before when the pandemic wasn't happening. Um, but what, then when you dive in a little bit deeper, you start to see that in the first three months of this year, it was only a 7% increase. So it's starting to sort of trickle down a little bit as far as the, the increase goes. And then the spring, um, there was actually a decrease in the number of car thefts compared to pre-pandemic. And then when you look at that sort of statewide, you know, zoom out, that's the same trend. Um, so ultimately sort of this, this research question of, was this a pandemic spike or was this a juvenile justice system out of control? And what we found was that it seems like the there was a spike that was correlated with the pandemic um, when you look at just the, the frequency of car thefts. Um, we also looked into, um, there's been a lot of narrative around um, carjackings and violent offenses. And so we um, we got some data from the crime analysis unit at the state and, and we found out that only 3% of all car thefts so far this year have been um, associated with, a, you know, a robbery, a, you know, all the sort of violent offenses that could be associated with them. Um, and we looked at a trend line and saw that that didn't shift during the pandemic. Um, it didn't seem to shift. Um, one way or the other. It was still about the same same share of all offenses. Um, and so when you sort of start to dive down into the data, um, it looks like th this really truly was a pandemic shift. And so for the first story, which airs tomorrow, um, we look into New Britain, one town, and what it means for all the activities, football, um, you know, Latin club, all of those sort of things, what it meant for students when things were shut down. When you talk about uh, car thefts uh, in our state, the data doesn't show that children are to blame for these? Right. Um, so few kids are actually arrested, adults or kids. You know, um, it ranges between 6% of all car thefts and in an arrest. Um, and in some years, it's up to 12%. Um, and so when you look at who's being arrested, um, it, it you're not able to make the claim that with the data that it's actually kids driving this. Um, 
you know, police work on the ground, police work, they'll tell you that, you know, our insider knowledge of, of what this is, it is a kid's issue. Um, and so that's sort of the, it, it's getting pinned on juveniles, but we're not able to actually show that with data. You're hearing Jacqueline Rabe Thomas here on Where We Live, investigative reporter for Connecticut Public Radio's Accountability Project. Also with us, Walter Smith Randolph, investigative editor and lead reporter uh, for the Accountability Project. Uh, Jackie, you mentioned uh, this series starting tomorrow. So let's talk about uh, the programming that's out there that was not available during the pandemic and the ripple effects to that. Yeah, so um, we looked at the court system to see, you know, the courts, the juvenile justice system really serves as a referral system for so many teens that get involved in in the system um, to connect them with places like Omar uh, McDo's football team in New Britain. Um, you know, several people are required to be on his football team or another um, extracurricular activity um, to, so that they have a structured activity to, to um, engage in and, and get them on the right path. Um, but what we found that during the pandemic, um, the courts really slowed down. Um, you know, the, the number of kids that were waiting for over six months to have their case processed and resolved um, more than doubled. Um, and so what that means is you have hundreds of children who weren't being referred to services um, to sort of divert them from, from bad behavior. Um, you know, um, one of the the people that we quote in the article is, um, you know, devil's devil's time is a, uh, sorry, idle time is a devil's playground, um, and so that's sort of one of the theories is that um, a lot of people who work with these kids is that these kids didn't have anything to do when everything shut down. You spoke to a mother of a fifteen year old son who was one of the the young people waiting for a referral. Let's hear what she shared. Um, so, so here's the thing. I didn't notice he was going down, you know, the wrong path. So the, the thing is with the court, they wait till, you know, it, like they, the, the child does it multiple times or commits a very serious crime before they actually give us help. You know, I've been asked for a program from the very first time. I guess you have to wait till you get on probation to get into programming, you know? But also in the neighborhoods we live in, like, there's nothing for the kids to do out there. And if it is, it costs so much money. And it's just, it's like, you know, it's difficult. You know, parents got to work two jobs, then to pay for the extracurriculum. You know, it's just a lot. But where I live, there's nothing for these kids to do out there. See, at the time where it began, he liked to do, you know, cooking and, like, beat making and, you know, things like that. They didn't have anything like that. And even the sports, you know, the school where, you know, that's close to us, they, they still to this day don't even have a a basketball team or football or baseball, none of that. But we have a, a baseball field out there. We have a football field. But the schools don't have any sports. Even for the girls, there's nothing for the girls to do. Jackie, what happened to Crystal's son? He um, started stealing cars early in the pandemic, um, and his behavior eventually um, landed him in a more serious um, system, the adult correction system. And so he is now incarcerated in an adult prison. Mm. 
Uh, Walter Smith Randolph, you know, when we hear uh, Jackie talking uh, to parents of children that are in the system and now uh, the consequence is that uh, they're locked up, I mean, we talk about, you know, what that does uh, to families, but also when we think about when when kids um, have been needing help in the pandemic, um, that impact on mental health, that's also something that uh, you and your team looked at. Yes, exactly. You know, some of the politicians have called for transferring more um, more children, more juvenile offenders to the adult system. And so Jackie, um, in her second story, actually took a look at, you know, how there are more services now in some facilities for some of these juveniles. She actually visited, uh, compare and contrasted a, a story that you did actually, Lucy, when you visited the Connecticut Juvenile Training uh, School um, and how that was shifted to a facility in Hamden where, you know, at CJTS, it was, they could host up to 250 juvenile offenders and it was treated more like a prison versus a facility in Hamden where they have just, they can have just eight boys and they get, uh, they have a full team of 40 people that are um, tending to their mental health needs that are tending to some of their other services. When you transfer a child into the adult system, you know, um, that becomes a permanent record and that affects the rest of their life, whether they can get a job, whether they can get housing and things like that. So Jackie um, took a look at the two different facilities um, um, to try to compare and contrast and, and see it, what would happen if politicians, some of politicians got their way. And Jackie, you spoke to Ileana Puyos, the policy director of the Connecticut Justice Alliance. Let's hear what she shared. I think when we unpack that kind of solution, right, taking a look at the impact of being incarcerated and what that does mentally, physically, right, emotionally to a child who's ideally still developing, right? Um, I think this notion that there's more services and resources in the adult system shouldn't call for a transfer. It should call for more investment in JJ services, right? When you, especially when you get into the adult system, like that's a permanent record for some of these kids. And that ultimately impacts housing access um, access to career and jobs, you know, that that's a lifelong impact and there's no room for, for second chance with a, with a situation like that. Jackie, uh, Walter mentioned the Connecticut Juvenile Training School. It's uh, been closed now for a few years. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about the options uh, for children who need a little bit more help uh, than uh, being referred to an after school program. Sure. So, um, Connecticut has really moved in the direction of incarcerating as few children as possible. Um, now, you know, sometimes that can have, um, you know, the decisions to release people. Um, you know, there's always room for second guessing when a tragic event happens, like what happened in, in New Britain and, and sort of reevaluating whether or not that was the right decision. Um, but Connecticut has decided to lean more heavily on keeping youth with their families in their homes because that's ultimately where kids will end up um, after they're released. Um, and and so, you know, Connecticut has opened a, they closed a, the Connecticut Juvenile Training School, which had the capacity to house up to 250 boys. Um, the new facility that they've opened currently can only house up to eight boys. Um, and, and the idea is to just sort of wrap as much support around um, therapeutic support, um, educational support um, around these kids before they are sent back home so they're better equipped. Um, just as a sort of a, a 
a setup of sort of who these kids are that do need that are in the deep end. Um, you know, the typical team that's sent to the Hamden facilities three years behind in high school. They, some have already dropped out. Um, many have learning disabilities in their their school where they're coming from. Never identified those learning disabilities, and Hamden uh, has identified some of those. Um, almost all of them have unaddressed mental health issues, and some are foster kids, and the state is their parent. Um, we spoke with Latasha Archibald, who sort of explained. Um, who these kids are and, and just sort of the trauma that they come from. And when you, when you talk with juvenile justice advocates, uh, you know, the idea where if you just lock up children, eventually they age out of the system. And if they don't get the help that they need now, uh, they end up being incarcerated uh, later in life. And so again, when we talk about ripple effects, like that's the reason why you don't just wanna uh, lock up a child uh, that needs help. And and so I'm wondering, Walter, and the, the way that you and your team have looked at this, uh, this problem, this issue that keeps coming up, uh, we hear from politicians and in, also in some communities. I mean, what's it, what's the next step? Is this something that you expect the legislature to want to act on? Because again, we hear every year that um, there needs to be more resources. But uh, beyond that, um, you know, what action is, is going to happen? Um, well, I think it still remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen. But if you listen to what's been going on, Republicans keep calling for a special session, um, and that hasn't happened. I mean, there's been special sessions to extend the governor's coronavirus emergency orders, but they haven't tackled um, juvenile justice. Um, there's been talk about revisiting the police accountability uh, law that was passed, um, but that hasn't happened. And as we get closer and closer to the next session, it you know it it seems less likely that's going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, it just it. it it remains to be seen, seen again, you know, what, what will happen at, at the state level. That's Walter Smith Randolph, investigative editor and lead reporter. Also, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas was with us, investigative reporter on this team. Uh, their series uh, looking at a juvenile justice uh, starts tomorrow on Connecticut Public Radio and online. Thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there's a lot of attention on the global supply chain and labor shortages affecting businesses. But kindness has also been in short supply. Local restaurant owners and their staff are bearing the brunt. We talk to them after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Restaurant work is hard work. Now add a pandemic to the mix. It's been a year and a half of reduced hours, staff shortages, and disruptions in food and other supplies. And it's taking a toll on restaurants' bottom line. Just last month, seven out of 10 restaurants in Connecticut reported they were less profitable than three months prior. That's according to the National Restaurant Association. But there's another factor leading to a breaking point. Customers unhappy with reduced hours and menu offerings have taken their frustration out on staff. Less patience and civility in recent months has led the dining community to say, enough is enough. Here's executive chef Christian Petroni, who owns Italian restaurants in New York and Connecticut in an Instagram video. Please be kind to restaurants. You gotta understand that the food that is coming out of a kitchen is not coming out of a printer or a machine. It is being made by human hands. Please respect these folks. Please respect this front of the house staff that is the conduit (laughs) between the guest and the kitchen. I mean, something I was never able to do because that is truly one of the hardest things on this planet. With that being said, please, please, please be kind and think about the person and the families that are cooking your food. That video was shared by local group Eat in Connecticut, which started a hashtag be kind to restaurants social media campaign. The co-founder of Eat in Connecticut joins us now, Jeanette Darden. Jeanette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. First off, it speaks to the, the times that we're in that you have to start a social media campaign to remind people that they need to be kind. Yes. So tell us what what made you and your other co-founder think about this. Uh, did you see people acting a certain way? Did you hear from others in the, the restaurant community that were, were dealing with this on top of all the other stressors that I mentioned? Absolutely. Kristen and I, you know, we run a Facebook group, Eat in Connecticut, and we often have chefs and restaurateurs and the dining staff, you know, reach out to us when they need help and support. And so, you know, we realized we needed to do something because, you know, all of us have fantastic memories when we go out to eat. But, you know, things are a little bit different now. So we came up with this campaign to really gain a deeper appreciation for and an understanding of what's going on right now, what the restaurants are facing. So you've been spotlighting many restaurants. So what are some of the messages that you're hearing? We're hearing that, you know, people are coming in and not necessarily being as patient and compassionate. You know, um, there may be less workers and that doesn't mean that they can't attend to you. It just may take a few more minutes and that's fine. You're still going to get that fantastic food and have that fantastic memory. Um, but just be compassionate. These are we are all humans. Right. So. Would you say it's pretty widespread? Even when I'm out and about with my family, whether I'm going uh, to a local coffee shop or to a restaurant, it seems like there's more and more signs on the door or at the register that reminds people that uh, they need people need to be patient. And I, I haven't seen that before. 
Yes, I think uh, a lot of, you know, it, it's a it's a great campaign. You know, we're seeing it all over the state and we're seeing it all over the country. You know, uh, people are coming out and they're recognizing that, wait, we need to be kind to our fellow neighbors. Well, one of the restaurants that you've featured on the Be Kind uh, to Restaurants uh, social media campaign uh, is the North House. And uh, April Gibson joins us now. She's executive chef there. This is a, a restaurant in Avon, Connecticut. April, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. So tell me a little bit about uh, the message that you shared. It was really very candid. Uh, the final lines were, it's not hard, just be Nice. So tell me about, uh, you know, what was the breaking point for you where you felt like you needed to share what you and uh, your other uh, teammates uh, were dealing with at a, on a day to day basis? Well, at the end of the day, you know, um, the smaller staffs are working harder. They're working more. And I had just a really bad night and I was able to get my emotions out and Jeanette was so great and got it up. And, you know, we all work so hard. Every employee in every restaurant are struggling and it's less and less people working. I have four cooks in my kitchen to do 150, 200 people. So at the end of the day, you know, we get really strung out and just we're exhausted. And, you know, Dylan will fill you in that, um, you know, guests just aren't as happy to go out anymore. It's almost, excuse me, sorry, like a chore, you know, you mentioned Dylan. Dylan Reese is the general manager at the North House. Uh, Dylan, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having us. So you're, are you more on the front of the house? Uh, so tell me some of the experiences, uh, uh, exchanges that, that you've had or heard from customers. Well, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, everyone is uh, absolutely happy to come out. And I feel like most people are understanding, but lately, uh, more and more, not so much. Uh, you know, I had a friend of mine the other day, also works in a restaurant, put up, uh, um, you know, a payment slip and somebody wrote on it, get more help. Um, if we could get more help, you know, we definitely would. And it would make things a little bit easier. But it's it's the interactions and responses like that that make this so much harder uh, for the time being. Um, you know, I have a lot of the regulars that come in that are very understanding. They'll sit there and, you know, they, they see the interactions with, other guests that aren't so understanding as well. And it's, it just, it's baffling sometimes. So how long has it been like this, Dylan? Um, well, you know, for, I, I'd say the last four months or so, I think as the summer was starting to wind down a little bit, um, it's starting to get increasingly tougher, um, especially with people's schedules changing and, you know, when it gets cold and dreary, people want to go out and they want to go out to have fun and eat and have that nice experience. And that's their getaway for not being stuck in the house. And when you can't walk into a restaurant because they're understaffed and have already committed to feeding, you know, 150, 200 other people that night, uh, you know, it's a little disheartening to see, to have to turn somebody away. That's the last thing anybody wants to do. And so I think that that's also, you know, gains to those frustrations from, from guests as well as, you know, the restaurateurs. Uh, April, I mentioned that Instagram post that was shared by Eden, Connecticut, and your first sentence, uh, you say, 
the simple answer is that so many things are beyond our control. And so give us a behind the scenes look of what you and your staff are dealing with uh, when we think about labor shortages, also uh, supply chain disruptions, what that's doing to your bottom line and, and how it makes you have to then uh, adapt your menu and maybe not having some of the things that your regulars are used to you having. So um, my main distributor is PFG. Um, we're closed Monday, Tuesdays, but myself and two other of my employees go in on Tuesdays to ensure that if we do have a delivery issue, we can rectify it and, you know, we're good to go for Wednesday. Um, but I'm there anywhere from 9 a.m. The truck will be there sometimes at 8.30 in the morning waiting for me. Other times it doesn't show until 3.30, 4 o'clock. You know, and then we have to put everything away, make sure everything is organized and clean and taken care of. And then, you know, sometimes we'll be there till six o'clock on a Tuesday when we're not even open. Um, you know, menu wise, I try to appease as many different palettes that come through our doors as possible. And sometimes, you know, I just don't have something we can please. I feel that for the staff, I have a pretty well-rounded menu. Um, kind of hits all the points. But, you know, like we're still not doing brunch as much as I would love to do a brunch service. Um, I just simply don't have the staff to put the extra hours on. And uh, I think some of our guests don't really like that too much, huh, Dylan? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely a thing. You know, I miss brunch as well. Uh, the duck hash was great. But, yeah. um, you know, until we can get a few more bodies, um, you know, there's just certain things that we can't do and and we don't really want to not do those things we love to bring raw bar and all that stuff back but that also goes to food costs and you know it's uh it's just kind of crazy right now so tell us more about the staffing issues that uh, the north house is experiencing how far back do they go and you know because we're hearing anecdotally that this has been an issue in lots of different small businesses dylan but tell us what about you've been seeing at the north house well, since the whole, you know, pandemic even started, uh, you know, most places being closed and laying everybody off that that instantly, you know, hurts the staffing right there because you have to lay certain people off even when you do reopen because you're not busy enough to bring those certain people back. And so, you know, that creates people either going elsewhere or finding a new outlet and a new, you know, career change. Um, in the last few months, you know, a lot of, a lot of the team that we have, we've had for several years, which is, um, you know, pretty cool to, to have all the same faces around. We're pretty much a family, but recently, you know, some of those employees that we have are in college and, you know, school comes first and they have to put that forward. And so, you know, they're cutting their hours back a little bit and it's really hard to get anybody to come through the doors these days. Um, you know, beforehand I would have. 10, 15 people a week come through and put an application in. And since, yeah. since this whole thing has happened, it's been pretty hard. And the ones that, you know, people don't want to give up their weekends. And, you know, I can understand that. But Fridays and Saturdays and holidays and, you know, that's a lot of time that you're giving up and giving to work. And so I think that's part of it as well. So when you look at your staffing today, you know, how does that compare to pre-pandemic? Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> I used to, you know, any given Friday, Saturday night in our busy season, I would have, you know, three bussers, three runners, um, you know, an expediter. I'd have three girl, three at the host stand. Um, you know, I could have up to eight to 10 servers 
depending on, you know, how many covers we were doing that night. And right now, still in our busy season, I, you know, this past Saturday, I had one host on a host stand because of homecoming. And I have, you know, one busser, one food runner and three servers. And that's to do, you know, about 150 people. And part of that issue is if you can't get hands in the kitchen, we can't expand to do more numbers. So I can't even bring on more of a farmhouse staff, even if I could find them. So it's just kind of that trickle down effect that hasn't been helping. Uh, April Gibson, you know, what keeps you going each day that you're you're coming back to the North House? And because uh, this seems to be a, a pandemic that has had a lot of uh, stressors over the months and it's 18 months now and it doesn't seem like things are, are uh, improving. So how do you keep going? Um, <clears throat> well, that's uh that's a hard question. Um, no, it's, it's, a, it's more just a sense of pride, um, you know, getting up and doing so much with so little. Um, it's, I'm impressed day in, day out by what we do accomplish. Um, it's, it's, it's that sitting down at the end of the night when the rush is over and then you can just finally breathe. That is one of the most amazing feelings that I think I can have ultimately it's it's that wow we just did this and wow we just did that and we're gonna do it again tomorrow and the next day and you know we have a really good time we try to keep things as light and fun as possible because it's so stressful and it gets so complicated and not always the best of vibes in the kitchen but we get through it and at the end of the day we're a team and uh we take care of each other the best we can Dylan, do you share that same sentiment? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I've been at the North House since day one. Um, you know, I'm the opening manager there, and uh, I've seen a lot of faces come and go, and I've seen most of them have stuck around. And it, like I said earlier, you know, the retention has been great. Um, so seeing a lot of those same faces every day just makes you more of a family instead of just coworkers. Um, and, you know, we like to do a good product. We like to have good service. We like to see those same faces coming back and, you know, people driving from a few hours away just to come have the duck breast on a Sunday night and, you know, driving an hour away to come have our desserts that we make in house. You know, it's things like that that make us keep doing what we're doing and enjoy doing so. It's it's mm -hmm. it's very rewarding, um, you know, seeing all the people smiling and, and saying, hey, we can't wait to come back and we want to have a party or do a large event here. It's, that's the most satisfying feeling in the world. You've been hearing Dylan Reese and April Gibson from the North House and Avon. Uh, uh, before we head to break, I wanted to go back to Jeanette Dardenne, co-founder of Eating Connecticut, which is this local group that started the social media campaign, Be Kind to Restaurants. Uh, Jeanette, how do you respond when you hear April and Dylan just talking about you know, what the last few uh, months and weeks have been like? Uh, do you hear from others where you know, it's time for them? They think maybe it's time for me to throw in the towel. It's just too much. You know, I have to be honest, I don't hear people saying they're going to throw in the towel. Instead, I hear people like April and Dylan who truly love what they do and will continue on. They'll they'll get through this just like we get through anything else. This is not something that's going to stop them in their tracks. These are incredible hard workers. And again, just when you go out, say a special thank you to them. These people are working more hours than you can possibly imagine. That's Jeanette Dardenne, again, co-founder of Eating Connecticut. Jeanette, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. April and Dylan from the North House will stay with us. And after the break, we'll hear from another restaurant owner about what it's like to work in the hospitality industry in the pandemic. What's been your experience? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're checking back in with local restaurants. They're giving us a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to work in the hospitality industry, an industry that's been struggling with staff shortages and supply chain disruptions. Restaurant owners and their staff are also asking for patience. It's the message behind a social media campaign called Be Kind to Restaurants. With us on Zoom is April Gibson, executive chef at the North House, and Dylan Reese, who's general manager at the North House. Uh, uh, before we hear from another restaurant owner, uh, April and Dylan, I wanted you to respond to something someone shared with us on Twitter uh, when we talk about uh, the labor shortages in the pandemic. Uh, uh, this person says, uh, rather than be kind, maybe we should be fighting to bring equitable and fair wages and benefits to those in the service industry. I'm sure you've heard that uh, in the last 18 months. How do you respond, April? Um, I actually agree with that statement uh, 110 percent you know work-life balance is so crucial to things like mental health and just general well-being Um, and we are offering fair wages um, fair scheduling where we're not just going to tack on a million hours on you Um, you know we try to not have someone work every single holiday you know we feed the staff Um, I mean, I think we do a really good job taking care of people. We do have health insurance packages available to full-time staff. Um, It's it's just something that's, it's it's so complicated. If you go on Indeed um, and you scroll through all these job listings, you know, there's incentives to work like $1,000 sign-on bonuses. And there's still urgently hiring tags on all of these ads, myself included. I have an ad up if anyone wants to come and apply. Um, <laughs> that would be great. But yeah, I mean, my dishwashers are paid well above what minimum wages, which is now what, $15 an hour, I believe. Yes. So we don't give people the bare minimum because we can't expect the bare minimum. You know, it's hard work and it takes a lot. And we definitely take care of our staff as a whole with all of that, actually. I wanted to bring another perspective uh, with us on Zoom now is Jared Schulfand, owner, operator, and chef at Home Restaurant in Brantford. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us what you and your staff have been experiencing over the last, I guess, 18 or so months. Yeah, so, I mean, it's the you know, same experience that every other restaurant is, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic um, with uh, shutdowns and, you know, government regulations and everything made what's already a difficult business almost impossible. Um, and then within the last, you know, six months to a year with everything opening back up, it's, you know, the labor shortage, not being able to find help where, you know, I'm sure April and Dylan can 
you know, agree with me that it wasn't easy to find help before this all started, but it's gotten even more difficult. And then, you know, just the products being unavailable or, you know, prices just increasing anywhere from 30 to 150%, um, you know, on a weekly basis. And so with the staffing shortages, what did you do? Bring in family to help? Um, well, my dad actually already worked for me before the pandemic. So that that helped, uh, obviously, in the beginning. And myself being a chef, bartender, server, I do it all. So, you know, I had it a little bit easier than some in the beginning of the pandemic, because when we were just doing takeout, I was able to almost do it all by myself um, and then slowly start to bring people in as we got busier. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, it's also limited seating, you know, like they said, you know, we're still at this point, 18 months out, not serving lunch during the week where we usually did six days a week, lunch and dinner. And I just don't have the staff to, to be able to offer, you know, every meal period that we usually would. Mm. So I understand that you started Main Street Hospitality, which is actually helping uh, you and your competitors. Tell us about that, the idea behind it. Uh, yeah, so myself and a colleague, actually a friend first and then a colleague, um, started a consulting group um, where, you know, basically it, it got to a point where I had enough staff um, for the takeout business we were doing because I didn't open for dine-in right away. Um, and then I kept, you know, seating limited. So I had some time to be able to leave my restaurant a little bit. Um, and so we started a consulting firm, started help. I helped uh, a friend open up a restaurant. And then we started picking up other clients where we would um, basically just try to help them maximize what little profitability there already is in restaurants. I mean, restaurants were already just a you know a game of pennies you know there was there's there was no profit margin before the pandemic and now it's gotten even less and less um so a lot of it is just to you know help other restaurant owners who aren't as well versed in the business as i am um to to operate um we help recruitment we help with you know financials um basically help all aspects of you know what restaurants are needing right now and how long have you been in business jared um, so home has been open for nine and a half years, almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And then the consulting firm we've been doing for about a little over a year now. Mm-hmm. So you've got this experience under your belt. And so when you think about uh, others around you, your competitors who may not be as uh, experienced, you know, this idea when we hear about the, the chain supply disruptions, driving costs way up. So how do you band together to help uh, with those, uh, those financial stresses? Um, a, a lot of it is just awareness. You know, what, what Eden Connecticut is doing is amazing. Um, you know, the fact that you guys are having us on NPR is amazing. Um, you know, just making sure that the general public is aware that, you know, if your prices at your local restaurant are, ra- are rising, it, it's not because of greedy restaurant owners. It's because, you know, it's costing us a lot of money to put the food on a plate and, you know, I could almost guarantee that anybody who's serving chicken wings right now is not making is losing money on chicken wings. Um, there's there's a lot of different products like that that, you know, I'm pushing my restaurants that I consult for to either take them off the menu or limit them. Um, you know, we I'm actually I usually change my menu six times or uh, twice every six months, and um, I'm actually doing it now after three months uh, just because of you know the 
the quality of products, whether it's romaine or onions or, you know, just the, the price of, you know, anything between chicken and steak and beef and stuff like that. So it's um, football yeah, season. Yeah, a lot of it's awareness. Yeah. You just said that no one's making money off chicken wings. When I think of the football Definitely season, not. I think chicken wings on Sunday. So so the costs <laughs> yeah. have risen up that much? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's something I took it off my menu. You know, we, before the Super Bowl last year, I think it was January, the case of, a case of chicken wings was anywhere from $90 to $100. Now, if you can find them for less than $170 for a case, you're lucky. Um, and that's, and you're, and you're, it's almost impossible to find fresh and not frozen. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of products like that, that people just don't realize. And I think a lot of it is the awareness, which is why it's great that you guys are having us on. And so, uh, you know, everyone's hoping for an end in sight to this, but it's also, uh, winter's coming, uh, the weather's getting colder. How do you see that impacting your business, Jared? Um, I, you know, like I said, it's a, a lot of it is changing up the menu, uh, trying to do hardier foods that are gonna, you know, cost us less to produce or, um, you know, just, uh, you know, making smaller menus. I mean, and again, it's something that you said in the beginning of the segment is customers aren't very, uh, understanding of having small limited menus, but a lot of times, you know, it's just what we can handle and make sure that we're giving out the best product that we possibly can without overextending our staff or ourselves or our product supply. Mm. Uh, April Gibson still with us from the North house. April, how do you respond to what, you know, Jared's trying to do down where he is? Um, so when we had first reopened, I think I started with a dinner menu with about six, six items and it was just my Sue and myself. Um, so at the North House, we have three separate kitchens. So we actually moved from our main kitchen into a temporary setup. And we are able to utilize our banquet area and put out about 20, 20 tables outside. Um, but the way everything is set up, you know, you have to set yourself up for success. Just like um, Jared was saying, smaller menus, make it make sense for the staff. Is it probable? Is it cost effective? Um and now that I have a few extra staff and we're kind of getting back into a sense of normalcy, um, you know, I have since extended the menu and, you know, same thing. Like I'm not having my ducks that Dylan just threw out there on a Sunday night. Um, I have to go through a whole different company to get a similar product, which I'm not really sure what I'm going to get. It's usually kind of a dice roll. Um, and yeah, costs are going up through the roof where, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe we should just cut down on portion sizes. And then people, you know, aren't always the most understanding on that. That way I don't have to, in turn, raise my prices. It's trying to find that happy medium of just getting through this until things calm down, I guess. Jared, what are the, some of the silver linings uh, to the work that you're doing? Um just that people are willing to work together. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of restaurateurs and, and GMs uh, before the pandemic, it was almost concentrating too much on competition, which I always thought was a mistake and like, you know, pitting one restaurant against another where now it, it really feels like a community. Um, the Connecticut Restaurant Association has done a lot for all of us. Um, you know, and each individual town as well has helped their restaurants but it just feels like everybody is willing to work together and you know be one industry one voice and you know really help each other out um that's a lot of the stuff that 
I was kind of surprised with uh, when I started the consulting firm because, you know, I was helping out. I, I still consult for two restaurants in the same town as my restaurant. And, um, you know, it's not it's not competition. It's trying to figure out how we can all work together to, to make this work. And I feel like restaurant owners and GMs and chefs are now more receptive to working with their competitors instead of against them and just kind of coming together and making this happen. You know, we started uh, this segment talking about uh, the the movement "Be Kind to Restaurants." Uh, Jared, what have you been hearing from your customers? Um, so, I'm very, very fortunate that I have a really loyal following. So, I, I haven't seen too much of what other restaurants are seeing. I have heard from my colleagues how terrible it has been. Um, but, you know, for the most part, unless it's a brand new customer that just happened to wander in during a busy shift and not realize that, you know, they needed a reservation or anything like that. Um, we've been pretty fortunate. It's, it's almost really the only time we get a little bit of flack is if we're out of an item, which, again, is these days completely out of our control. I mean, we'll we'll have an order on item and or an item on order. And when our distributor shows up, you know, that's when we find out we're not getting it or, um, you know, and from what I hear, it's happening to them too. They're not, they're getting shortage as well, the distributors. Um, but besides for that, we've been very fortunate, but yeah, I've heard a lot of the same stories of just people not understanding wait times or people leaving, you know, telling people to hire more staff, which obviously we are all trying. I mean, every restaurant that I consult for is hiring right now. And including my own. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of a lack of patience, I feel like. You've been hearing Jared Schulfand here on Where We Live. He's owner, operator, and chef at Home Restaurant in Brantford. Jared, thank you for coming on. We enjoyed hearing from you. Thanks for having me. Also with us today was April Gibson and Dylan Reese from the North House in Avon. April and Dylan, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having you. us. Enjoy. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Coming up tomorrow, we know live theater has come back to life, but that doesn't mean theater is completely back to normal. On the next Where We Live, we hear from local theaters about what's coming to the stage this fall while keeping actors and patrons safe. We hope you join us.